0: I would like to call your attention once more to the words found in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, reading verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. tremendous statement, undoubtedly one of the most pregnant uh, statements in the whole of the Scripture. I don't think there is any statement in the whole of Scripture that contains so many uh, striking, vital, all-important pronouncements and aspects of doctrine as uh, these three verses. And we are looking at them together, as most of you recall. Now we are reminding ourselves that the apostle here is continuing the great theme of the chapter, namely assurance of salvation, giving us an absolute guarantee of the final completion in glory of our total redemption from everything that sin and evil have done to us. And uh, therefore, we, we are taking it uh, in the way the apostle puts it, starting with the experimental and going on to the doctrinal. We've been considering what he means by the statement that all things work together for good, especially if we emphasized that he is careful to say that this doesn't happen to everybody, but only to Christians, to those who correspond to the description given here of the Christian believer. We've also been looking together at the way in which uh, all things do, in practice, actually work to this end, and how it is God who works them to that end. They don't happen automatically. It is God who works all things, or who so deals with all things, doesn't matter what they are, that he uses them and turns them to our Ultimate good. That is the fundamental statement that God does that with regard to all who correspond to this description. Well, now, having done that, we then came to this vital question. How can we know that this is true? How can we be sure of this statement? And we've answered that by pointing out that it's something that is taught very clearly in the scripture, taught in the teaching, in the promises taught also in the experience of the saints, uh, about whom we are told something in the pages of the scripture. It was good for me that I've been afflicted, says the psalmist, because before I was afflicted, I went astray. And many others join him in saying exactly the same thing. And we've also seen that it is something that is substantiated by the experience of God's people throughout the running centuries. There's a great unanimity about this that uh, persecuting times or trying times are generally found to be healing times. Well, no, that's the point at which we've arrived. But now we must come on to something still more practical. This is the next question, therefore. How can we know that this is true with respect to us? Here's a general statement that all things work together for good to them that love God. But the point I should be concerned about is... How may I know that this is true, and that it's true of me, that it's true for me? Clearly, that was the object which the apostle had in his mind here. We must never think of the apostle as just a man sitting down to write a treatise on theology, or on the Christian life. Again, we have to say that he's the greatest theologian the church has ever known, as he was the greatest evangelist, he's the greatest everything. But he, he was also always the greatest pastor, and his interest is always primarily pastoral. And he was writing to these Romans, not in order to write a religious or a theological disquisition, he was writing to help them. He was always writing to help people. The apostle never fell into the error that so many of his followers and even his admirers have often fallen into of divorcing theory from practice. Never. He always blends them. He always has a practical intention. And indeed, he brings out these great theological statements of his in order to help people in a practical sense. The apostle was never guilty of that false dichotomy of dividing a man into brain and practice or understanding and living. He always addressed the whole man, and he's doing it here. So I say he would be concerned above everybody that we should look at this not in a theoretical manner and say, ah, this is very wonderful, God overrules everything for the sake of his people, and we've grasped another truth. Well, yes, that's right, but you must go on to this, is it true of me? How may I know that this is true of me, that at the present time, whatever my circumstances, that all things are working together for good for me. Now that's the vital thing, isn't it? Well, the answer is this. We must discover whether we conform to the description that is given of the people to whom this does apply. It doesn't apply to everybody, it applies to certain people. So our problem is, do we conform to the description of the people to whom this does apply? And here it is. The first thing we are told about them is that they love God. All things work together for good to them that love God. Now here is an interesting expression. Why do you think he describes Christian people here in these terms? Why doesn't he say all things work together for good to them who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? He might equally well have said that. But he doesn't. He particularly chooses in particular to describe them, firstly, as people who love God. Now, you will find that the apostle does this quite often in describing Christian people. Take, for instance, a very well-known and familiar statement which he makes in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. He said, I hath not seen, nor e'er heard, neither hath entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Same thing exactly. And there are other examples of the same thing. Now the question I'm asking is, why does he choose this particular description of the Christian instead of one of many others that he might equally well have chosen? And it seems to me that it's important that we should be able to answer that question. So I suggest some answers like this. He does it partly, I think, in order to contrast the uh, Christian with the man who's not a Christian in terms of what he said about the non-Christian in verse 7 of this chapter, where he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So, at once, you see, it's, it's a, a very striking contrast with what is true of the unbeliever. Now, the apostle you know, was very fond of putting it in this form. He does exactly the same thing in writing to the Ephesians. In the fourth chapter, we remember in verse 17 and following, he says this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. It's the same contrast. And I think it's something we should always bear in mind, and especially in these present days, because there are so many people uh, who would uh, describe themselves in their relationship to the Christian faith uh, solely in terms of intellect. And uh, they think it's just an intellectual question and a matter of not believing. It isn't. The trouble with the non-believer, the non-Christian is that he's a God-hater. And a part of preaching, perhaps, especially in these days, is to show them that. It isn't just that they don't believe they hate God. These are the only alternatives in the scripture. You either love Him or else you hate Him. So it, it helps to bring out this contrast between that natural mind, which is enmity against God, and the opposite of the Christian, He loves God. Very well, there's one thing. And that leads to the second, which I've already just touched on in saying that, which is that the uh, apostle is anxious to show that this is something which goes beyond just believing in God. Uh, Now again, the Bible is very concerned about this. The apostle James, you remember, in the second chapter of his epistle, tells us that the devils also believe but tremble. So it isn't enough just to ask a man whether he believes in God. You can believe in God and still not be a Christian. You can believe in God but this great promise isn't true about you. We require something more than that. It's not just a matter then of giving intellectual assent to the truth about God, certain aspects of the truth uh, concerning God. No. this is a is a more thorough test. It's a more searching test. It's one thing to be religious. It's another thing to be a Christian. It's one thing I say to say, "Oh, I've always believed in God," but that belief may be of no value whatsoever. It's not of necessity Christian belief. A man can be a theist even without being a Christian of necessity. So the, the test is, is a much more thorough one. You see. This glorious assurance is given to these people, and therefore we must make certain that we belong to them. And it's it's a very good thing to do in this way, that if there's anybody listening to me tonight who lacks assurance of salvation, well, it may be that you're wrong here at the very beginning, right at the very beginning of all. If you merely have an intellectual belief, or merely given an intellectual assent to a body of doctrine with nothing else, you'll never have assurance, it's impossible Assurance is a deep thing, and it presupposes certain things in us. Well, the other way of putting this, perhaps, is to put it like this, that our Lord, you remember, sums up the first and the greatest commandment in these terms, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. Love is all-inclusive. When you love, well, every part of you is involved in it. You can't love in sections of your personality. Love is always totalitarian. Love is always totalitarian in its demand. It wants the whole of us, not parts of us. It's the same with God, and there it is. Heart and mind and soul and strength. Everything is to be included. So the term love here puts its emphasis at the point at which it is so very necessary in that way. Then the next thing, uh, and this is just an elaboration of one aspect of that, is this. That we've got to be quite clear in our minds as to what love includes, what it represents. All things work together for good to them that love God. What is it to love God? Well, all I'm concerned to emphasize now is this that it's not merely a matter of sentiment or of feeling. There again is a snare which uh, the devil often puts up to trap us. There are people who think that they love God because they may undergo a, a certain uh, emotional feeling, have an emotional feeling, or undergo some emotional change in a service or something like that. that that's, not, that's not love. Love includes emotion, but it's a much bigger thing. It's a deeper thing. You can have a passing emotion. You can think that you're loving God. You prove later that you're not loving God. Well, how? Well, in this way. Our Lord has settled this for us once and forever. In many places, but there's an illustration of it in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. He asks the question, who is it, who is he that loveth me? And he answers his own question. Even he that keepeth my commandments. That's it. There's no use talking about love unless we are keeping the commandments. This is one of the tests of love. You can't have a theoretical love. People often fool themselves with that. Love is always practical. As I say, it is totalitarian. You see, strength, heart and mind and soul and strength. The will is involved. And love of God includes this. That... uh, It is our desire to please God, and to live to His glory, and to keep His commandments, and to be like Him. Now, we we must never leave that aspect of the matter out when we are considering what it means by saying that the promise is to them that love God. You see, the apostle, it seems to me, chose the term because it's such an all-inclusive one, and there are no loose ends left, there's nothing uncertain. He takes us right to the heart of the matter so that we can be quite sure as to where we stand. But here, I think, in particular, he had a very special reason for using this term about loving God rather than just believing. And the practical intention, I think, is this. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately as to whether we love God or not is to discover what our reaction is to adversity. What is our reaction to the trials and the troubles of life? Here's a thing, I suppose, which of everything else brings us most quickly to know exactly whether we love God or not. There are many people, our Lord himself taught this, of course, in the parable of the sower. They seem to have believed the gospel. They seem to have been enjoying the Christian life. They've come into the church Yes, but when trials and tribulations arise because of the gospel, they give it up. They can't stand the test. They feel they've been let down. They had the notion that uh, to be a Christian means that you'd never have any troubles and problems. And the moment they come, oh, they say there was nothing in it after all. And out they go. They don't love God. Let me put it in a, a simple way by putting it like this. Trials and tribulations will very soon show us whether we love God, if we look at it in terms of whether we are more like Job or whether we are more like Job's wife. You remember what happened. Job, you remember, was tried. The devil came before God and said, it's all very well for Job to be a good man And to go on serving you. Look how he's being blessed. Look how wonderful everything is for him. And he said further, Oh, if Job only began to suffer, you'd very soon see that he doesn't believe in you. Well, God gave the devil, you remember, permission to test him. And Job was tested. The first test comes. Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the man who loves God. He can still say that. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. That's the first chapter. Then you remember certain further tests came. and Poor Job is now touched, even in his own flesh. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh as the devil, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So when Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. That's Job's wife. But he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now that's the test. Or to put it in the still more magnificent statement that Job makes later on. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's the man who loves God. There's no better test than this. When everything's going against you, when you're being tried and tested and disappointed, do you want to curse God? Do you grumble and complain? Well, if you do, I don't think you've got much grounds for thinking that you're the one who loves God. But if in spite of it all, You bow your head and you say, I'm in the hands of God and he knows what he's doing. Far from cursing him, I say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand, but I know that God is love. That's the test. And I believe the apostle here, as he's bringing it in, as we've seen in the context of trials and troubles and tribulations, and this state and condition in which we know not what we should pray for as we ought, He says, now then we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To those those who can go on loving him, where everything seems to be against them and everything seems to be against the fact that God loves them. They still love him. Very well. I think it's a, a very good reason for using this particular expression. And then I think there's a final reason, a fifth reason for this, which is this of course. That there is no more absolute proof of God's love to us than the fact that we love him. I'm using the argument of the first epistle of John in chapter 4. We love him, why? Well, because he first loved us. We wouldn't love him if he hadn't first loved us. So if I find that I love him, I've got an absolute proof that he loves me. And that's the very thing the apostle is trying to convey to them. So it's a very good thing and a very wise thing to put it in terms of our love to God. No man would ever have loved God unless God had first of all loved us. And therefore if we thus prove by our love to God that God loves us, we can be absolutely certain that everything will be overruled by God for our good, and for our benefit, and for our ultimate glory. Very well, and there's the first description of us. If we now in the light of these things can say, we love God, very well then, here's the promise to you. All things work together for good for you, because you are one of the people who love God. But come to the second, all things work together for good to them that love God, To them who are the called. Now then, here's a second description. It's another way of describing the same people. The called. Why does he suddenly, you think, introduce this term? Well, he immediately is confronted by this question. These people love God very well. What makes them love God? The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But these people love God. How did they ever come to do this? What's ever made them do it? Here's the second term, therefore, the call, to them who are the call, according to his purpose. Now, we've already met this word earlier on in the epistle, but we can never be too sure about this word. We can never examine it, therefore, too carefully or too frequently. Let me summarize the doctrine as we've already considered it in this way. This word call, uh, to call, is used in two main senses in the scripture. The one is what you may call a general call. And the other is described as the effectual call. What does it mean? It means this. There is one sense in which everybody... Here's the call of this gospel. At at any rate, anybody who's ever heard the gospel truly preached has heard the call of the gospel. You remember our Lord sent out the disciples with this commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There is the general call. It is to be preached to everybody. Take that word we were reading just now in... Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Take what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17 in Athens, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That's the general call. That is to every person. There is no exception. We are to call and command all men everywhere uh, to repent. There is this universal preaching, there is this, this universal offer of salvation to every creature. Now that's what I mean by the general call. It's most important that we should be clear about this. There are some people who've misunderstood the doctrine of some of the great reformers, and they say this shouldn't be done. The gospel is only to be offered to those who are chosen, those who are elect. And unfortunately, many people in their ignorance say that is Calvinism. It isn't. That is hyper-Calvinism, which is a very, very different thing. John Calvin taught that the offer should be made to everybody, to all creatures. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So the call to repentance, the terms of the gospel should be offered to all without any discrimination whatsoever. That is the general call. But it's very clear, isn't it, that uh, all people to whom this call comes do not respond. There are people, if you like, sitting in the same seat in the same chapel, same church, hearing the same call. One of them believes, the other one doesn't believe. There's a difference between them. They've both had the general call. But there's a difference. Now then, this is where the term, the effectual call, comes in. It is obvious that in the case of one, the call has not been effectual. It is equally clear that in the case of the other, it has been effectual, effective. It's done something. It has produced this desired result. Now then, in which sense, which of those two senses is the apostle using the term here? Well, I think it's perfectly obvious, isn't it, that it is the second one. There are no promises to the effect that all things work together for good to them who do not respond to the call of the gospel. Indeed, they are threatened with damnation and with hell. God's wrath is upon them. So that this is perfectly clear that this is the effectual call. Indeed, verse 30 makes it something which is clear beyond any doubt at all. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. That's not true of an unbeliever. That's not true of anybody who hasn't believed the gospel. So the apostle here is dealing with the effectual call. And indeed, you will find that uh, when it's used like this as a description in the New Testament, it always means the effectual call. Now we had an illustration of this in the very first chapter of the epistle. Listen to the first verse. Paul A servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, or if you like, a called apostle. It was an effective call, an effectual call. He wasn't just given an invitation, he was put into the ministry. That's what he says himself. It was effectual. He's a called apostle. But you get exactly the same thing in the seventh verse. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Called saints again. Now, here are the people he's talking about. It is to people who have thus been effectually called and were thus saints that this great promise is made. Well, we've had that distinction again in Matthew 22:14. Many are called, but few are chosen. And the parable, you remember, made the thing clear. These men went out and they took the people in, into the feast. Others had been given a general invitation, but they made excuses. And they didn't go. Then the servants went out and they took these people in. That's the effectual call. Many are called, but few are chosen. Or listen to the apostle Paul again in writing to the second epistle to Timothy, the first chapter verse 9, he puts it like this. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There's a great statement of it once more. Then you remember the apostle appealing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The vocation into which you have been called, it's still the same. It's always the effectual call. He's only writing there to Christians, not to anybody else. It can't be the general call. It is this particular effectual call, a call which has been made effectual. And you've got the same thing in the first verse of the epistle of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And, of course, there are many, many other illustrations of the same thing which I could quote to you. Well, now then. The test, therefore, we have to apply to ourselves is this. We've already tested ourselves by asking, do I love God? I now ask myself, have I been called to them that love God, uh, to them who are the called according to his purpose? Now, I only want to deal with this question of the call tonight from this experimental standpoint. We'll have to deal with it later from the standpoint of theology and doctrine when we come to verse 30. I'm still dealing with this great statement experimentally. If you are annoyed at that, well, it goes down as a very black mark against you. If you want to rush to the doctrine, it makes me begin to think that uh, you're more interested in the intellect than in the life. And it's a very bad sign. You ought to be interested in this practically you ought to be interested in this experimentally. And if you want to rush on to doctrine, why am I saying this? Well, because a few friends have already said to me, greatly looking forward to when I come to chapter 9. My dear friend, you ought to be much more interested in chapter 8. Anybody who is more interested in chapter 9 of the epistle to the Romans than chapter 8 makes me very doubtful about him. You put anything before this practical, experimental sign, And I say it's a sign that you are at any rate in a doubtful position. It means that you're just interested intellectually and you're a controversialist. God deliver us from any such thing. This is practical comfort. And if you don't want that, well, you better examine the whole foundation again. How can I know that I am one of the called? Before I come to look objectively at the great doctrine? Here are some of the tests. And I know of nothing more important than this. Can I say honestly, I am what I am by the grace of God? That's a very good way of looking at it. Why are you here tonight? Why are you a member of the Christian church at all? What's your What's your answer to this? How do you answer that question? Why are you here? What's brought you? What's made you uh, what you are? It's a very fundamental question then. And uh, do you say that, uh, well, uh, you decided to do this? Is that it? Or do you say in some shape or form, I am what I am by the grace of God? Are you amazed at yourself? Are you surprised at yourself? Does it astonish you that you are here, not doing something else this Friday night? These are the proofs as to whether you've been called or not. The true Christian is a man who can't understand himself. And he can only say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I've done, I have done this. But he knows that something has been done to him. He's amazed at the fact that he loves God. And that he's not like these other people. Well, why? Well, you see, the Christian is a man who's conscious that God has been dealing with him. That's what it is to be called. That you've been in, your life, as it were, has been interrupted. That God has done something to you. You don't call yourself. It's God who calls. Called according to his purpose. So if I may split it up a little and put it a little more in detail, I would put it like this. Are you aware of the fact that God has entered into your life and uh, has disturbed your life? Do you know something of the experience of Francis Thompson and others in The Hound of Heaven? He chased me down the night and down the days, down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, down the changes of the years and the corridors of time. That's it. Uh, to be called means that you know that God has come after you, and God has done something about you. This interference in your life, this eruption into your life, if you like, this laying hold upon you, it's it's entirely different, you see, from our deciding to do something or our taking up something, because we find religion interesting and intriguing and enjoy this aspect of that no, no, here's the test. These are the people to whom all things work together for good, those who feel that the hand of God has come upon them and taken hold of them. They've been apprehended, as the Apostle Paul puts it. That's the idea. So he comes and interferes with our life. And then you you find yourself convicted of sin. You don't want to be. You don't want to be. You see, the whole thing... as against the grain, as it were, it's all been happening to you. You don't want to be disturbed, you wanted to go on living that life. You enjoyed that sin, and it was uh, the thing that gave you the greatest happiness, but you're disturbed, you're condemned, you're convicted. You were not doing it to yourself, it's the last thing you do, but it's being done to you. And you did everything you could to shake it off, and you wished it wasn't happening to you. That's a part of being called, the voice that keeps on coming. And you try and stop your years and you run away from it. But, you know, Bunyan describes all this, but there it is. That's a part of the call: conviction of sin. And then, having struggled against it and fought with it, you begin to have a feeling that this word is true. The natural man doesn't believe this word is true. He says it's just a book like any other book. It's the words of men. But you see, when a man is really called by God, he knows that this is not the mere word of a man. You listen to the way in which the Apostle Paul himself puts this in writing to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. They had a persuasion that though the lips of men were speaking, and the words were coming out of a man's mouth, it was God who was speaking to them, the call of God through this human instrumentality. A great persuasion that the word is the word of God and not the mere words of men. Then, of course, this in turn leads to a feeling of our own utter helplessness and need. Nobody, by nature, would ever feel that, would ever bring himself to feel that. Any man who tells you that he has received Christ, or taken Christ, or anything else you like, who doesn't at the same time tell you that he was utterly convinced and convicted of sin, and felt completely helpless, doesn't conform to the New Testament description. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to repentance, And he calls the sinner to repentance. And then displays to him the greatness of his own salvation. Well, this man therefore has got this feeling of helplessness. And if you've ever heard that, you've been called. Nobody else could ever produce that in you but the Spirit of God. And it is his work to do this calling. We see our need. And then we see the fullness and the all-sufficiency of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see that he is the Son of God, and we believe in him as such. No, nobody else can do that. The princes of this world, says Paul to the Corinthians, didn't believe in him. Everybody said, this fellow, this carpenter, away with him. It's only the Holy Spirit who can convince a man that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And then the truth concerning him, his atoning death and its sufficiency, the glory of his resurrection. Now, these are the tests. It's only the man who's been called who believes these things. There are many who call themselves Christians who deny all that. But they've never been called. They're not Christians. And they don't have assurance. They don't even believe in assurance. They write and argue against assurance. They're quite consistent. But they're just telling us they've never been called. You've got to be called before this statement is true concerning you. And then, you see, this man is now filled with a desire... To know God better, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. He's heard it, and it's the most blessed voice and call he's ever heard in his life. Thy welcome voice. And he responds and answers and says, I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. And now his greatest desire is to know him better. He feels a magnetic attraction. There's something calling him and he's responding to this blessed call of God. Have you been called, my friend? All things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. Are you aware of this calling of God? That he's laid his hand upon you. That he's arrested you, apprehended you. That he's drawn you with the cords of his love. And I say the inevitable result is amazement at yourself. That you should be such now. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The apostle Paul was a man who was amazed at himself. Even unto me, he says, who am the least... Less than the least of all saints was this grace given. That's Ephesians 3. Then in 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, he revealed himself unto me as of one born out of due time. In 1 Timothy again, 1.13. I, he says, was a blasphemer and an injurious person, persecuting him. That's what I was, but I obtained mercy. He never got over it. Now this is the great characteristic of the men to whom uh, this great promise is true. So I like to sum it up like this. Are you surprised at yourself? Are you surprised at yourself that you're here tonight? And that you can enjoy this sort of thing? That you don't find it extremely boring? Is there anybody bored with what we're doing here tonight? My dear friend, you are not a Christian. Take it from me. You're not a Christian. Go back. Go back. Go and do some first work. I don't care whether you're a church member or not. If this doesn't ravish your heart, if you don't feel that this is the most glorious thing you'll ever hear, the most wonderful thing you can ever do in this world, you've never been called. The called are the people who want more and more of this. They can't help themselves. They're newborn babes, and they desire the sincere milk of the word, that they may grow thereby. Well, you see, we are called to a holy and a heavenly calling. And therefore it inevitably produces these results. But let me just give one final answer to our question this evening. These are the ways in which we can be sure that the promise applies to us. We love God. We are the called according to his purpose. And thirdly, our actual experience in the Christian life tells us that this is true. It says it's Amen to what this says. Now that's a way again in which believing and loving God in God and loving God is put in the scripture we set our seal to it that it's true can't paying us the compliment of saying that that we can set our seal to it we can say our amen to it the christian the man to whom the promise applies is a man who can say yes i know in my personal experience that this is true that all things work together for good to them that love god what do i mean well i mean something like this Do you still have the feeling that God is dealing with you? Not merely that he brought you into this life, but he's still dealing with you. Do you still feel that God is interfering with your life, that he's there? Did you sing that hymn quite genuinely and honestly and sincerely just now, Oh love that wilt not let me go. There may have been times when as the result of the devil's temptation and into your own weakness and folly, you wished he would let you go. You wanted to go and do something with somebody else, and they were pressing you, and you really wanted, but you couldn't. Oh, love, that wilt not let me go. Is he still dealing with you? Here is something that goes on in the Christian's life. Tell me another thing. Do you find that you can't be happy in sin? You may have tried it, as it proved to be a failure. A child of God can't be happy in sin. I'm not saying that he may not sin. I'm not even saying that he may not sin for some time. That's what I mean by backsliding. But the backslider's never happy. He's the most miserable man in the world. He still goes on, but he's miserable. He must be, because he's got a seed of divine life in him. So failure to be happy in sin is a very good proof of the fact that God is still dealing with you. Then can you say this? Can you really and honestly say that your experience is that chastisement has always been good for you? Things even that hurt you, can you thank God for them? Do you see and do you feel and do you realize that when unkind things may have been said about you and men have reviled you and vilified you, criticized you wrongly and harshly and so on, instead of being furious and wanting to strike back do you say this to yourself? This is good for me. It's better for me than praise. My danger is to lose my head. My danger is to think that I am self-sufficient. Do you thank God for it? And do you sometimes almost say to Him, keep on doing it? Keep me down. Keep me humble. Keep me in the place where you can always use me. Keep me in the place where I can always have uninterrupted communion with you. So can you say from your own experience that all these things that work against you quite clearly are working for you and working for your good? And you bow your head with the, the psalmist and you thank God for it and say it was good for me that I have been afflicted. Can you agree with the psalmist? It's a wonderful proof that of uh, the fact that you've been called, nobody else ever says that. They curse God, they hate God for it, and they damn the Christian religion and say it's a fraud. Can you, in other words, end by saying, you look into the face of God and you say, let nothing please nor pain me apart, O Lord, from thee. Well, my friends, there it seems to me are some of the tests that we have to apply to ourselves. In order that we might know this blessed truth of assurity as being true of us. All things work together for good. All things are overruled by God for our good because we love God because we are the call. And then, God willing, next Friday night we have to look at this. Perhaps the greatest of all the phrases according to his purpose. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee this evening once more for the wonders of thy grace. O Lord, we marvel together that thou hast troubled not only to save us, but to let us know that thou hast done so. That as our loving Heavenly Father Thou dost not choose to leave us in uncertainty as we go through this pilgrimage and as we fight in this battle of life against the world and the flesh and the devil. Thou hast provided means whereby we might know that we are thy children, that thou hast loved us with an everlasting love, and that thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, by thy Spirit, wilt thou enable us to apply this word to ourselves that we may test ourselves and examine ourselves and prove our own selves and know whether we be in the faith or not, above all that it may end. In our having this blessed assurance and certain knowledge that thou art ordering all things for our good and that nothing shall ever be able to separate us from thy love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now... May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.